Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner. I'll be one of your hosts today, and I'll be joined very shortly here by Taylor. First, want to give a shout out to two of our new patrons, Jessica and Violet, for joining us over on Patreon. So thank you for joining us over on Patreon. As always, you know, we got uh, we have the back catalog there for you to check out. And we have some new stuff coming up, especially next month, once we're hopefully on a better recording schedule, got some other business out of the way, and we'll be able to really hit that uh, bonus material hard. Uh, so with that, let's bring in Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, what, Sunday morning? It feels like fall outside. There's NFL football in a little bit. It's a good day. I feel like I just went to bed after watching Colorado, Colorado State. I um I think I fell asleep in the third quarter of that, and it was uh, it was a good game. It was fun. It was it was one for the ages. I honestly thought Colorado would run it up a lot. Dion has the whole country staying up till one or two thirty in the morning to watch Colorado play football. So it's doing something. It's entertaining right now, if nothing else. So yeah, uh, what else have you been up to media wise? Well, that's a great transition to actually another football thing that I've been uh, that I watched recently. Uh, BS High on HBO Max. <laughs> I think it's HBO Max. Mm-hmm. It's about Bishop Sycamore, the uh, high school in scare quotes <laughs> football team that got just absolutely destroyed by IMG Academy like two years ago on ESPN. And like mm-hmm. even like halfway through the game, the announcers are like, hey, something's not right here. Like this is not right. a team. That should be playing. And um, yeah, just if you want to see someone who's truly scary, the man who founded this team <laughs> is just a pure con artist, like out of like the 1890s, but scary because he's one of those people that like you can see their face change almost. They'll be really friendly and happy. Mm-hmm. And then you can just see it in their eyes and the way that their face is shaped almost when they change and get angry. And it's like, it's truly scary. Is that just a documentary or is it like a series? Uh, it's a documentary. I wanted to check that out. The guy who like did all this is like the main interview in this. And like, he's just one of those people that in another life, he'd have made a great politician because he will just lie to your face as he's mm-hmm. shaking your hand. But it's, it's, it's such it was it was very interesting. I'm not going to say it was the most like thought provoking documentary I've ever watched, but it was very uh, interesting to watch. Yeah, I want to check that out. I remember trying to understand and then subsequently explain the whole story of Bishop Sycamore to Katie. And I like there was too much and I couldn't do it. So watching a documentary sounds better. A lot of it boils down to if you start a religious school in Ohio, there's not a lot of regulation that goes into it. (laughs) Well, there you go. Um, Other than that, uh, another movie we watched last weekend, we watched the Barbie movie Mm. and it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, I want to check that one out, too. I don't know. It was fun just going into a movie. Not it didn't have to be some dramatic piece of film, but you know, it turns out that this is going to actually be one of the most impactful films of this decade, probably mm, the most but, um, discourse laden. Yes, but very good. I mean, obviously, pretty good message. The "I'm Just Ken" song is an absolute earworm, and if you've been on TikTok, I know you've heard it. And we actually changed the words to "I'm Just Finn," and we sing it to the cat now. I have not. Uh, heard it but if you send me a tiktok i, I will <laughs> watch it yeah you know how it is it's always fun when you have a new thing to sing to you, the, the cat or dog uh what about you speaking of new things to sing i think you have some stuff uh a lot of good music recently 
uh, last Friday, Electric Six put out their album Turquoise. Been a few years for them since their last one. And, you know, historically, they they kind of put out an album a year. So having the the longer wait was a bit different. Would you say Electric Six is your favorite band? Like pound for pound? Probably, I would say in terms of like, well, strangely enough, it's it's probably either Electric Six or the Gaslight Anthem. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say Electric Six. I mean, a band I've seen in person multiple times. They don't have a bad album. I think the closest they have to a bad album is Human Zoo, and it's just a less good album. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff on Human Zoo is good in concert. Uh, mm-hmm. Contributes a lot to the experience. But yeah, having new stuff from Electric Six is always uh, wonderful. Uh, and then also this past Friday, uh, the death metal band Two Mold put out uh, a kind of a surprise album, The Enduring Spirit. They announced mm-hmm. it, I believe it was on Monday. Uh, oh, wow. They, they like just announced surprise. like, hey, by the way, at the end of the week, we're putting out, I think it's their fourth album, which is great. And I guess it's I guess maybe it's a function of uh, being in the era of not being reliant on physical media to distribute things. You mm-hmm. know, when you I guess when you finish something, you can kind of distribute it. Especially if you're doing it yourself or through like a band camp, I guess. Like it is totally up to you as to how you release it or when you Yeah, and they're it. they're on um twenty bucks spin is the name of their label. Um but uh yeah, they they put it up uh, on Bandcamp on Friday and then that's when you could pre order physical uh versions of it. Uh but yeah, it was cool. It's a it's a great nice. album. Very it's a very different uh different direction for them. It's a lot more progressive than their previous album manner of infinite forms which is one of my favorite death metal albums and yeah it's a a new direction definitely uh but really enjoyable awesome so i'll try not to talk too fast as we're going through all of this because we have a lot to go through this is (laughs) part three of our series on the whale ship essex this is the last of the main feed releases uh, for this series so summary of what we have covered up to this point you should Listen to episodes one and two if you haven't so far. Um, part one, we covered some key points in the history and development of whaling in America, as well as the history of the island of Nantucket. Part two took us from Nantucket to the Pacific Whaling Grounds, where the Essex was sunk by a very large and very determined <laughs> sperm whale, or maybe just very confused. Right. The jury is still out on why exactly that happened. So we can pick things up here with the immediate aftermath of the sinking, uh, which Chase puts at coordinates of zero degrees and 40 minutes south, 119 degrees west. After being informed by first mate Owen Chase that the Essex had been stove by a whale, Captain George Pollard observed the ship's masts should be cut down in hopes of righting her in the water. From Chase's narrative, Our thoughts were now all accordingly bent on our endeavors to save from the wreck whatever we might possibly want, and for this purpose we rose up and got on to her. Search was made for every means of gaining access to her hold, and for this purpose the lanyards were cut loose, and with our hatchets we commenced to cut away the masts. In doing which we were occupied about three quarters of an hour owing to our having no axes, nor indeed any other instruments, but the small hatchets belonging to the boats. After her masts were gone, she came up about two-thirds of the way upon an even keel. So, as we've talked about in some other stories before, we talked about this a lot with the Spanish Armada, and talking about these, you know, these age of sail and earlier vessels, you know, they're, they're wooden vessels, and once they spring a leak, or 
get their bow smashed in by a whale, they're not just going to plummet to the bottom. They're going to stay afloat for quite some time until they mm-hmm. basically until they fall apart. And so here, I mean, the, the ship is listing. It's it is taking on water. It's sinking. But Pollard's first instinct is we need to get the ship righted. So they cut down the masts. And yeah, those hatchets that Chase is referring to, these are just the same hatchets that they use to cut the harpoon line. Should that be necessary from the whale so boat? So it's literally just like a little It's a little hatchet. Hand tool. Yeah. And now they're having to cut down a ship's masts with these. So hence why he says it takes them 45 minutes. If that kid can survive a plane crash and march through the Canadian wilderness with a hatchet, then they should be fine. I forgot about Gary Paulson. Yeah, that's a deep cut. Very formative read for a lot of young people. I don't know if it's specifically young boys, but I know they were popular with boys when I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Getting into the ship, they're able to transfer 600 pounds of hardtack and all the water they could safely carry to the whaleboats. Throughout this, sometimes it'll be referred to as hardtack, sometimes as bread, talking about the same stuff. Yeah, it's unpleasant either way. Yeah, not great. A few of the tortoises made it onto the boats as well. I didn't realize that Galapagos tortoises could actually swim. Or maybe they just kind of float. I mean, I guess I thought they swam. I don't know. I guess I thought they they just lived on land, but maybe they can maybe they can swim also. Uh, also, two of the pigs made it onto the boats. The pigs are like, oh, it's so great to be off that sinking ship. I wonder what's going to happen next. It's also noted that the pigs are pretty scrawny, so not going to provide uh, a whole lot not, of meat. Not big, like fat farm pigs. Yeah. Uh, so they also grabbed useful tools and other equipment such as boat nails, a musket, two pistols and gunpowder. Uh, So importantly, in the initial escape from the ship, crew member William Bond had salvaged two compasses, two quadrants, and two copies of the New American Practical Navigator. So that's a book. And how many boats do they have? Uh, They're going to have three boats. But only two compasses. Right. So this is going to... Sucks to be the off-islanders, I suppose. It's going to be a factor here. (laughs) So the sea conditions deteriorate as the wind starts to increase and Pollard orders the boats to tie up in the lee of the kind of semi-sunken Essex. Uh, So one of the boats is tied at about 100 yards from the ship. Second boat is tied to the stern of the first with about 50 feet between them and then a similar distance between the second and third boat. So they're forming they're a line uh, in the lee of the, the Essex. So they make it through that night. You know, they're exposed to the wind, the waves. The next day, they go back onto the ship for just another pass through in order to salvage anything that might be useful, anything they might have missed the previous day. Next, the ship was, and if you'll excuse this turn of phrase, cannibalized for parts to rig the whaleboats into some rudimentary sailing craft. Sails are stripped from the Essex and her spars are cut down into masts for the whaleboats. Um, then using the timbers from the wreckage, they also build up the sides of these boats to reduce the water that's coming over into the boat. Uh, so I guess one thing we should sort of point out at this point, the one of the reasons they're so aggressive in doing this is because they know they are absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Oh, like, absolutely. Th- this is this is one of the most isolated points on the planet. So th- I think that, you know, that's why they're being so aggressive and building up these lifeboats and mm-hmm. and saving as much as they can is because they know they pretty much have to. Um, so by the next morning, the ship's breaking up further and an oil slick is starting to develop around the vessel and the <laughs> boats due to the whale oil barrels beginning to you know burst open. That's probably not the same kind of oil slick in the sense that this one probably attracts marine wildlife, which would be unfortunate. 
And it is funny because an oil slick after a shipwreck, after a ship sinking, it seems like such a modern concept. And yeah, it's funny that this also happens here. It's just a very different kind of oil. And this sounds pretty gross, the way that Philbrick describes it, getting all over everything, making everything slippery and sticky and probably doesn't smell very good either. You're like marinating for a shark. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's like A1, but but for a shark. Mm-hmm. That was the craziest part, reading about them uh, cutting up the whale on the side of the mm-hmm. ship when they have the, mm-hmm. the stages down there. How they'd be cutting into the whale and then like on the other side of the whale in the water, sharks would just be like going at this thing. So you're like, you know, a matter of feet away from these ravenous sharks as they feed mm-hmm. on this whale carcass that you're both cutting into. Yeah, that has to be weird. I'm sure you can feel like the shark grabbing it and pulling it and stuff as you're also working on it. Hey, that's mine. <laughs> so now it's time to decide where to actually go. Uh, like you said, they're in a very remote part of the ocean here. The three officers met in Pollard's boat to consult the copies of the Navigator, which listed, quote, friendly and other islands in the Pacific Ocean. Imagine, though, like you're having to make decisions and that's the only information you have is this book. Mm hmm. You don't even know, like, it's probably arbitrary on some of those islands if they've put friendly or well, other. And also because, like, this is a navigational book. That's what it's for. Probably mm-hmm. any any sort of, like, cultural or political information is probably, like you said, very subjective to who wrote it. Well, and, like, you don't know. Maybe this guy got visited by the English and he likes the English and you could pass for English. Mm-hmm. But maybe the Spanish were there and they killed his family and he's Mm -hmm. not real friendly with the Spaniards. Like you don't know Island to Island what you're dealing with. So backtracking the way they had come. So via the Galapagos to South America, that was deemed impossible at first by captain Pollard due to the unfriendly winds and currents, you know, those same winds and currents that took them out is going to make it very hard to go back. Mm -hmm. The closest documented land to them at this point was the Marquesas islands, which are about 1200 miles West. So yeah, this truly demonstrates this is the closest you've got. However, there is more going into their decision making than just the feasibility and the distance. Mm -hmm. The crew is also pretty terrified of who they might encounter when they land, wherever they land, if they sail west into the islands of Polynesia. To talk about the Marquesas as an example, the inhabitants of the Marquesas, they had a something of a warlike reputation among American sailors owing to an encounter with them during the War of 1812 which actually saw U.S. Captain David Porter and his frigate, also called the Essex, weird, enter into an intertribal conflict on the island of Nukuhiva. This is a fun little story. And Hold on, hold on. You mean the United States inserted itself into a inter-like <laughs> societal thing? Yes. And we picked a side and said, we want you to win? And it's the last time it ever happened. At what point was there like North Marquesas and South Marquesas? And <laughs> it's, it truly is a tale as old as time. Well, especially because this is like one captain in a frigate deciding to do this. Yeah, <laughs> it feels about right. And so this is actually like, like it, it would be cool if we had time and could probably do a bonus on this at some point. It is a fascinating story in American military history because it's a it's the War of 1812 and it's the War of 1812 in the Pacific. Yeah. So he had been in the in that area preying on British merchant shipping and had put ashore um, at Nukuhiva, which is like the the capital of the the Marquesas, to use a modern, more modern term. And so goes goes ashore, and there's multiple like tribes on the island, and they throw in with one tribe, and they're fighting the other two. This is actually kind of the basis of Herman Melville's book uh, Taipei, his first novel that he published. That's a huge part of the plot of the the book is how these tribes on the island are 
how they're thought of by the American sailors and how that doesn't necessarily reflect the reality on the ground. Interesting. Of, you know, which tribes are savage cannibals and which tribes are our buddies. It's interesting, like with David Porter, uh, he's essentially a pirate. Yeah, I don't know anything about him, but it seems like that's I, what I he's don't know anything doing. about him, but like that's basically what he's doing. That had to be a really interesting time. He's playing the same role as um as Raphael Sems basically in the Alabama. And like I don't blame him. Like if you're there on that island and like you you see like a power vacuum like yeah, you're going to pick a side and be like, "Yeah, I'll help you." It, um, it makes sense. You want to have the most powerful tribe like as your friend. Yeah, definitely want to do a, a a bonus episode about that at some point. So for a lot of Americans, when they thought of the Marquesas, they're probably thinking of somewhere that the U.S. military has been involved in this little, relatively small-scale shooting war. Southwest of the Marquesas are the Society Islands, one mm-hmm. of which is Tahiti, probably the most famous, which they knew even less about than the Marquesas. Uh, Owen Chase wrote in his narrative, These islands we were entirely ignorant of. If inhabited, we presumed they were by savages, from whom we had as much to fear as from the elements, or even death itself. It's funny, since we just talked about Taipei, that's actually another thing that Melville brings up, is even the use of the term savage to write about these tribal societies, saying, Mm -hmm. well, look what Americans and Europeans do as soon as we show up these places. Who's the real savage, hmm? (laughs) It's, It's kind of the same as in Moby Dick, when he portrays mm-hmm. the sharks feeding and the people butchering the whales and saying, oh, you could totally flip these and you would have the same situation. Mm-hmm. Similarly to Chase, uh, Pollard wrote. We knew that we were at not great distance from Tahiti, but we were so ignorant of the state and temper of the inhabitants that we feared we should be devoured by cannibals if we cast ourselves on their mercy. Um, And throughout this, I'm going to use the verb wrote when I talk about Pollard's account. He didn't technically write this down. His account is something that he was telling to other people and the other people wrote it down and shared it. Same idea, though. So Hawaii is about 2,500 miles northwest of them at this point. This was rejected due to the likely storms that would be encountered on this route. Do they know anything about Hawaii at this point? Like, is it? like a friendly location i believe they do just because of the british documentation of hawaii Mm -hmm. um so they they likely do know a little bit about hawaii ultimately the the decision is made to sail south roughly 1500 miles to a latitude of 26 degrees south then catch the winds that would carry them east back to the coast of south america a trip of over 4,000 miles by sea. That's crazy. Um, again, compare that to the 1,200 they'd have to go to get to the Marquesas. I just feel like I'd be like, I will take my chances with the cannibals. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I think I will be fine. That's exactly what that guy said before he went on Sentinel Island. <laughs> Probably. This plan of sailing south and then east, this is the plan most favored by the mates Chase and Joy. Uh, and they're able to convince Pollard to go along with it. This is usually put forward as kind of some evidence to the fact that Pollard is not cut from the same cloth as your typical Nantucket whaling captain. The fact that he is kind of making this a democracy. And granted, like the situation has changed. The vibes have shifted. They're no longer on the whale boat uh, or on the whale ship. But at the same time, in many other situations, you'd have to think that a captain who's used to his word being the law would say, no, we're going to the Marquesas. Or we're going here. Yeah, it's such a 
weird scenario because if he goes with what they say and it works, then it looks like he's this great democratic leader. If it doesn't work, he looks weak. But on the flip side of that, if he says, no, we're going to the Marquesas and everyone dies, then <laughs> it's solely like dependent on how the outcome. But if they is. go there and they all die, no one's going to be around to say, like, I told you so. That is true. That is true. Um, I, I think if it was me, I would have been like, hey, let's go to the closest place. Uh, personally, I've seen the movie The Bounty. Let's <laughs> go to Tahiti. Let's check it out. And so that actually connects to something here. While they might be excused for lacking up-to-date knowledge of the Marquesas, uh, which actually, according to a contemporary article in the New Bedford Mercury, were very peaceful since the war. That article actually came out in April of 1819, when they would have been still in Nantucket. Apparently, they did not read that article. <laughs> Philbrick does point out that Tahiti had been established as a favorable stopover point for quite some time. Again, like this does connect to the bounty. We talked about Tahiti a lot with the story of the bounty. The bounty arrived in Tahiti all the way back in 1788. This was mm -hmm. this was a well-known destination that ships could stop and receive a friendly welcome. Right. So it is a little bit strange that they say that they know nothing about Tahiti or the Society Islands. It is weird. And Philbrick chalks this up to the nature of Quaker society on Nantucket. Nantucketers were suspicious of anything beyond their immediate experience. Their far-reaching success in whaling was founded not on radical technological advances or bold gambles, but on, on a profound conservatism. If new information didn't come to them from the lips of another Nantucketer, it was suspect. So that's basically all they're doing. They're, they're choosing simply the most conservative of the possible options. Yeah, that's true. They really are, aren't they? Saying, well, we know for a fact that if we get back to South America will be received in a certain friendly way. Cut out as many variables as possible. I, I feel like, though, like, again, like, they're only worried about the outcome and not the process. And if you think about the process, it's a lot harder. And it's like, that's what they're relying on. They're saying, well, one thing we do know for sure is that we're good sailors. You know, we're mm -hmm. Nantucketers. We know how to do this. Let's rely. Let's choose the route that relies the most on our skill as sailors. Heffernan in Stove by a Whale he presents the men's fears as, quote, exaggerated, but not really irrational. Uh, talking about their fears of going to Polynesia. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you ended up on the wrong island, it, it wouldn't be great. And it's like you, you mentioned Sentinel Island, uh, somewhere that now, you know, everyone knows, hey, you simply don't land here. You're not going to be well received. And if you think about that, you know, this is at a time when a lot fewer of these islands are documented, you know, a lot less about the people on them. And like you said, just because they're friendly to one group doesn't mean they're friendly to everyone. There is that other factor of like, you just don't know what you're getting yourself into. And that's the thing that's, I guess, it would still suck to sail 1500 miles and then get eaten by a cannibal. So yeah, like, it's not like it's easy, <laughs> either, either way you, you go. And I can yeah. see them being like, well, at least we control our own destiny if we go the long way and sail. So to contextualize these fears, it, it helps to see what kind of ideas are circulating in the early 19th century regarding tribal societies. So in a 2019 article uh, called Traveling Anthropophagy, the depiction of cannibalism in modern travel writing, 16th to 19th centuries, Jose Hernandez cites an example from the geographer Alexander von Humboldt, uh, who had traveled in the Americas uh, from 1799 to 1804. If the Guiana Indians eat human flesh, it is not because of privations, 
or during rituals, but out of vengeance after a victory, or as the missionaries say, out of their perverted greed. Victory over an enemy horde is celebrated with a feast where part of prisoners' corpses are eaten. Wild Indians hate all of those who do not belong to their tribe or family. Indians who are at war with a neighboring tribe hunt them as we would animals in the wood. Thanks, Alexander. Yeah, that is that is intense. I don't know for sure that any of the men of the Essex would have read Humboldt or been familiar with his work, but these are the kind of ideas that are pervasive in society at the time. Any island you step on, you could get butchered and cannibalized. It's possible because Indians hate people who aren't from their own tribe, all of them. You know, Indians uh, here or you know, the natives of South America, they're depicted as uh, he uses the word horde. Um, he talks about them hunting each other like animals, you know, ways that are intended to depict them as something less than civilized. You know, the thing I kind of think, though, sometimes about this is like, this is one guy's opinion. What if Alexander von Humboldt just isn't that great of a guy? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what if he just pisses off all the tribes that he meets? Yeah, maybe that happened to you. You know, you have to be, I guess what you have to be careful with here is like you were saying is like, you're the only information you have is one person's experience. And like, results may vary when you go visit these places. So here, you know, Humboldt is writing about the natives of South America. But again, it's not hard to see how those ideas could be extrapolated to apply to any non-white, non-European society at the time. Oh, and I mean, how many of them assume they're kind of all the same? That too. Patrick Brantlinger, writing in Missionaries and Cannibals in 19th Century Fiji, provides some nuance uh, to the situation, though. Unlike those in Fiji and the Marquesas, Missionaries stationed in Tahiti, Hawaii, and Samoa did not claim that they witnessed cannibalism. They believed that cannibalism was once practiced throughout the South Pacific, but it ceased to be customary before their arrival. Although other horrid customs, such as infanticide and widow strangling, persisted. This fact should dispel any notion that they suffered from a collective delusion, much less that they conspired to identify all quote, heathens in all the world's dark abodes as man-eaters. Nevertheless, even the most detailed, sympathetic missionary accounts of Polynesian cultures overemphasize the horrid and unspeakable in contrast to the peaceful, productive, and artistic. So we get a sense of how even if cannibalism itself isn't really in the forefront of the survivors' minds, even if that's not their specific worry, the sheer alienness and otherness that they might encounter would have been uh, a concern. They just don't know what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, as uncomfortable as it is for us to think about, like, they feel safer in the boats on the water. This is how they've lived their lives. I mean, these these the Nantucketers are very, very experienced with this. For, for someone who's born and bred in Nantucket, you're probably going to feel safest in the whaleboat. And yeah, the the extent to which cannibalism is presented as a an indicator of, like, cultural value even in Taipei, uh, melville kind of presents the the accepted view of cannibalism in the marquesas saying how well this tribe is friendly this tribe is the enemy the enemy tribe they're savages they eat uh, other people that they kill in battle well the friendly ones eat people too but they uh they don't enjoy it as much as the as the, <laughs> as the evil tribe does 
so it really is that sense of, well, okay, there's there's some wiggle room here. Even the ones who do it, well, if they're friendly to us, it's not as bad. I mean, the thing I think you can flip it almost and think, what if one of these tribes was describing back to their people, like the Spanish Inquisition? Right. <laughs> How would they describe that? Like, oh, well, these people are arguing over whether this this bread really turns into their god. Like, and, you know, it would sound crazy. It would to sound them. incredibly silly. Yeah. So, like, it, you don't know what you're walking into with this stuff either. Like, is this like a ritual that happens once every 50 years? Like, you have no idea. I don't know. It is, uh, you know, any kind of cultural exchange if you're not going into it open-minded. Uh, I don't know. I guess you could end up in a lifeboat in the middle of nowhere. With that decision made of what where they're going to go, we've got 20 men remaining in total. Remember that Henry DeWitt had deserted uh, ashore in Atacames, and they're divided up into boats as follows. How do you think Henry DeWitt felt like when he finally heard about this? He's like, hmm. I actually didn't look into it, but I, I was... I was wondering about what did he get up to? I don't know if there's documentation of what he did after this, but he probably felt pretty good. Yeah, I'd imagine. Uh, so in Captain Pollard's boat were Obed Hendricks, uh, Pollard's cousin Owen Coffin, Charles Ramsdale, Barzillai Ray, Samuel Reed, and Seth Weeks. Um, so Pollard's boat is pretty young. Overall, Coffin, Ramsdale, Ray, and Weeks are all in their middle teens. Is that by design, though? I mean, do you kind of want young when you're dealing with this? I know Pollard wanted to be he wanted to have uh, Owen Coffin in the same boat because he's kind of acting in a fatherly role here because, you know, it's his cousin. I guess it also gives you someone that, you know, if you've got to start persuading, like you've got one person that's going to be on your side. And, uh, and he had come on the ship with, you know, some of his friends. So wanting to have all of that group together in one boat. So you've got a group that's probably the best group to be in, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, presumably looking at the beginning here. Uh, in Owen Chase's boat, there's Benjamin Lawrence. So that's the harpooner that he had replaced mm -hmm. due to performance. Isaac Cole, Thomas Nickerson, Richard Peterson, and William Wright. It's also important that Nickerson is in this boat because it gives us another perspective on Chase in the aftermath of the sinking. Because for reasons, no one else is going to be able to write about what Chase does. Mm -hmm. The third boat is led by second mate Matthew Joy. In this boat with him are Thomas Chapel, the only non-American, William Bond, Isaiah Shepard, Charles Shorter, Lawson Thomas, and Joseph West. So as with the hunting, this is the only boat with no Nantucketers, aside from Joy, who's kind of a Nantucketer. That is, yeah, so this is like the Bad News Bears boat. Oh, it will be. Uh, this is also the boat that has all of the African-Americans in it, correct? Not all of them. Uh, there, there are, I believe there's a, a black crew member on each each of the other two boats also and so so are some of them nantucketers actually uh no i believe no, all of them okay. were from off island um, okay. uh so another factor that's going to come back later is that matthew joy had been getting increasingly sick well before the sinking of the essex <laughs> oh good it's suggested that it was tuberculosis um i don't know a lot about tb but i i was under the impression that it was very contagious and so I was wondering why, if it was tuberculosis, no one else seemed to be getting sick. Or, I mean, yeah, I feel like at that point, the whole, like, if you're on a ship, that's like the perfect place for TB to spread. Unless there's different varieties. Yeah, uh, I don't that's know. That's true. Um, so all in all, the third boat. So they've got a sick officer. They've got no Nantucketers. Would have been by far the least desirable of the three. 
Although Chase's boat is actually in the worst sailing condition. Interesting. That's why they have one fewer person on board. Yeah, they have only six people on board. Interesting that you couldn't like weasel your way into a better boat just because you were the like, I guess boats were more assigned than anything. Uh, So each boat had 200 pounds of hardtack and 65 gallons of water, plus two of the tortoises from the ship. (laughs) Here's your here's your boat tortoise. (laughs) Uh, So Pollard kept the musket. Chase and Joy each were given one of the pistols. Provisions on the boat would need to last them an estimated two months that it would take uh, by their calculations to reach South America. They could have used the seagull gun. Yeah, there's going to be a time when they're going to wish they had that or something stronger. So all preparations made at 1230 in the afternoon on November 22nd, 1820, they set off on their voyage with the Essex disappearing behind them after a few hours. That had to be a bad feeling, like to leave like the one little bit of safety you had left. The way I believe it's in Chase's narrative, actually the opposite, um, saying that once that was kind of behind them mm-hmm. and they no longer had any delusions of like the salvation from that saying morale actually went up quite a bit of saying, well, this is what we're doing now. This is our task. I guess. so. Like, is it Cortez that burned the boats? Who was yes. that? Uh, I guess sort of the same thing, right? Like we're here now. And actually, that's a massive difference between what happened and how the movie depicts it. In the movie, there's a massive fire that breaks out. Because and so the ship, the ship burns down, <laughs> which again, like here, they were able to hang out and go back onto the ship a few times. I hate when movies do that, though, because it's like you didn't need to. It's like a pretty That's dramatic just... thing anyway. So, yeah, honestly, like the psychological bits are better like this mm-hmm. than a big fire. Yeah. So anyway, that that's a major difference in the movie. So because the Essex had sunk a good bit north of the offshore ground by sailing south, they're actually sailing right through it uh, and hoping, you know, they could stumble upon another whaler. Mm-hmm. And the chances are actually like not good, but slightly better since whalers always had a lookout set, you know, during the daytime. That's true. I guess they are always scanning for whale. So. So the chances are slightly increased compared to other vessels. Um, But also, this is a massive fishing ground. I believe in Philbrook, he says it's about the size of Texas. And there's maybe three to seven other whalers in it at the time. So not great odds. No, that is I I think I think with um, that image 370, like I think a lot of people became aware. The ocean is massive. Mm -hmm. Like you you're not going to be seen. So a few days into their voyage, Chase's boat. Uh, becomes in pretty desperate need of repair as the water coming in is just too much to keep up with. This is actually done with assistance from Pollard's boat. They end up kind of using one to prop up the other so they're able to affect these repairs. But with the water the boat takes, the store of bread is damaged by seawater, which is not great. Uh, they try to dry the bread out in the sun, which takes out the moisture, of course, but it leaves all the salt. Oh, no. Now you just have saltier bread. Yeah, that's not what you want in this scenario. Um, and then eventually, as they're eating through this stuff, they realize that that's what that's what's making them so weak and thirsty is the fact that they're <laughs> eating this saltwater bread. I mean, what an awful choice, because, you know, you're starving, but, you know, if you eat, you're going to be thirsty and you don't have. Mm, yeah, that's a bad cycle. There's probably not much worse you could eat if you don't have. An endless supply of water than salty bread. Maybe those I have some of those downstairs. We have some of those um, peanut filled pretzels 
Yes. That might be something worse you could eat for your thirst. <laughs> but I don't think those were invented yet. So a few days later, Pollard's boat had to be repaired in turn after a run in with a killer whale. That has to almost be surreal, like getting attacked by a whale again. Again. Especially one that you know actually would, like, potentially mm-hmm. be able to, like, maul you if it wanted to. So that ends up not being a huge deal. They do those repairs. By the end of the month, they start eating the tortoises, uh, having survived only on bread for the 10 days since the sinking. And this actually really reinvigorates the crew. Uh, like I mentioned in the last one, tortoise meat is supposed to actually be pretty good. I would imagine after 10 days of salty bread, possum meat's going to be tasting good. Like, give, yeah. you know, give it. <laughs> Uh, Some of them did apparently have difficulties drinking the blood, which some of them were able to do and some weren't. Obviously, you don't know till you're in the situation. But again, 10 days in, I think I'm getting it down one way or the other. Yeah, probably anything that I can feasibly put in, I'd probably be trying Mm -hmm. it. At times throughout the voyage, the boats would become separated, causing a deal of concern for the others. Uh, So from Chase's narrative on December 3rd, The night sky was dark, and the sky was completely overcast, so that we could scarcely discern each other's boats, when at about 10 o'clock, that of the second mate was suddenly missing. I felt for a moment considerable alarm at her unexpected disappearance. But after a little reflection, I immediately hove to, struck a light as expeditiously as possible, and hoisted it at the masthead in a lantern. Our eyes were now directed over every other part of the ocean, in search of her, when to our great joy, we discerned an answering light about a quarter of a mile to leeward of us. We ran down to it, and it proved to be the lost boat. So soon after this in Chase's narrative, the first mate notes how this sense of inseparability might actually prove damaging for the crew. Um, Because if something happens to one of the boats... If one of the boats is lost, if there's survivors that have to be transferred to another boat, that's just going to deplete the rations faster. Mm -hmm. And that's going to doom them all. Yeah, I think you might almost I mean, I don't know, but you could in some you could make an argument that like you're almost better off to scatter Mm -hmm. and you have the best chance of someone being found that way. Yeah. And then in theory, they could at least be like, hey, there's other people out here. We need Mm -hmm. to sail this direction. Yeah. So on the 15th of December, Chase's boat was in need of further repair, which saw boat steerer Benjamin Lawrence having to actually tie himself off and get into the water. Yeah, uh, I couldn't believe like what I was reading. To assist with repairs from below. I believe he had to swim under and basically hold the head of the hatchet underneath so that the nail had something to bounce off of. Uh-huh. It, it, that sounded absolutely crazy. Like, I, I don't need the boat on fire. I need this. Well, and also I have to wonder, like it, I mean, it could have just been like, hey, he's the he's the next most senior person, so he's going to do it. But also you have to think maybe Lawrence is looking for a way to sort of redeem himself a little bit because mm-hmm. he, he is removed from his harpooning role. And this is maybe something he feels like, OK, I, I need to maybe pull my weight here and, and get in the water and do this. Mm-hmm. So on December 20th, the men of Chase's boat sighted land, followed shortly after by the others. Uh, And as Chase tells it, We were all aroused in an instant, as if electrified, and casting our eyes to leeward. There indeed was the blessed vision before us. A new and extraordinary impulse now took possession of us. 
we shook off the lethargy of our senses and seemed to take another and a fresh existence. Pollard and Chase consulted their navigators, the, the books, and decided that this was Ducey Island. But aside from its name, they didn't really know much about it, uh, such as what kind of flora, fauna it might have, and whether or not it was inhabited by humans. The identity of the island will be important later, because it isn't Ducey Island. Uh, more from Chase about the initial moments on the island. Let the reader judge. What must have been our feelings now? Bereft of all comfortable hopes of life, for the space of 30 days of terrible suffering, our bodies wasted to mere skeletons by hunger and thirst, and death itself staring us in the face. To be suddenly conducted to such a rich banquet of food and drink, which we subsequently enjoyed for a few days to our full satisfaction, and he will have but a faint idea of the happiness that here fell our lot. Uh, so their main concern is finding water. They were only able to find it in small trickles on the occasional rock or in moisture from grasses growing on the rocks. So good for some momentary relief, but not nearly enough to keep you alive uh, mm -hmm. for any extended period of time. They couldn't initially find a source of running fresh water. And venturing off the beach, it showed them that the island was made of sharp, craggy coral that was impassable for people who, you know, if you had falling apart or maybe no shoes for some of these people. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of, um, I forget which Pacific Island battle it is in World War II. Is it Peleliu? The one that's basically just a a big piece of coral? Yeah, I know there's a couple of, of them that are like that, where like the reefs... Yeah, like are basically like razor wire almost. Yeah, and talking about how, you know, these artillery shells going off and it sends this, you know, what's basically a, a big fragmentation grenade going Everywhere. off. Yeah. They're kind of restricted as to where they'd actually go on the island. They're able to collect plenty of crabs and birds for a little feast on the beach, which, as they said, like this is probably like the best food they've ever eaten by comparison. Yeah, and I mean, you're going to be getting some hydration there, like from the blood and just from the meat and everything, but like... You're not going to be building up any reserve, I wouldn't think. Like, it's probably just enough to function. Like, you're going to be thirsty. <laughs> um, so here we get to see the high point, I guess, if you can say there is one, of the survival saga of the Essex. But Chase does make it clear in his narrative that they're, they're still keeping their eye on the prize. Uh, they, they, they're focused on getting home. Mm -hmm. So on December 22nd, the men continued their search for water and are actually rewarded with the discovery of a small spring near the beach. The problem with the spring is that it's really far below the tide line. Um, so it's only exposed for about a half hour at super low tide. Uh, and at high tide, it's as much as six feet underwater. Uh, so by Christmas Day, the men of the Essex realize that they're quickly running through the island's resources. <laughs> they realize that the birds aren't coming back because, you know, hey, like these bunch of dudes showed up and started eating us. So we're going to go elsewhere. Well, and you're eating like all the crabs that the birds probably eat. So like. Yeah, you're eating the birds and you're eating their food. So you're yeah, eating all the birds' crabs. eggs. So like, yeah, very quickly you're going through all this. This island's not built to support this many people um, or any, really. So they realize that they, they need to get back in the boats and start making some more progress. So it's resolved that they'll leave the island on the 27th, uh, you know, having rested, repaired boats and stocked up on all they could with provisions. And here the crew is going to lose three more members. Kind of to desertion, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we could call it a mutually agreed upon desertion. <laughs> they've, they've mutually agreed to part ways. Um, it's a mod. So Joy's boat steerer, Thomas Chapel, along with Seth Weeks and William Wright, they announced their intention to remain on the island instead of resuming the voyage. I get that. And so this is one man from each boat. Um, but in a sense, they're, they're members of the same group since they're all white non-Nantucketers. And contributing to this decision is probably the state that second mate Matthew Joy is in. He's the only one of the crew who doesn't really reap any benefits from stopping on the island. You know, the rest of them are able to recuperate, um, get some more energy, get some food in them. And none of that really seems to help Joy very much. I mean, so it sounds like Joy would have probably continue to decline even if the Essex had never been sunk. Like, it sounds like he was already on this path. Joy almost has nothing to do with, it's kind of a separate issue um, Mm -hmm. with the sinking. And so as boat steer, you can probably understand that if Chapel gets back on this, he's basically assuming leadership because Matthew Joy probably doesn't have very long to live. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're Chapel, maybe you don't really want to take that responsibility. Yeah, like you don't want to be responsible for other people's survival. Like you're worried about your own. So Chase tells of this decision as follows. The rest of us could make no objection to the plan as it lessened the load of our boats, allowing us their share of the provisions and the probability of them being able to sustain themselves on the island was much stronger than that of our reaching the mainland. Should we, however, ever arrive safely, it would become our duty to give information of their situation and make every effort to procure their removal from thence. Yeah, so really, I mean, like I said, mutually agreed upon. This is sort of a win-win-win for everyone. Mm -hmm. The island's not going to support all 20 of them, um, but it might support three. That's less burden on the boats. Yeah, kind of works for everyone. Yeah. Pollard left letters on the island stating the crew's intention to sail for Easter Island, and he left them in a box nailed to a tree on the western end of the island. They got back in the boats and left on the 27th, and now all these boats are short one man. But this does hit Joy's boat hardest because this is his boat steerer that he's losing. This is the second most experienced person on his boat that he's losing. Yeah, if you're one of those other crew members on that third boat, you got to be getting a little worried. You know, this plus Joy's illness, it's going to play a role in the success of the third boat's occupants. Um, so by January 7th, uh, this is 11 days after leaving the island, they'd only made 600 miles of progress. And this is where the story really kind of puts on the mantle of tragedy. On January 8th, Matthew Joy requested to be transferred to Captain Pollard's boat, and he spent two days on board before asking to be taken back to his own boat. On the 10th, around four in the afternoon, Joy succumbed to the illness that he'd been fighting since before the sinking, leaving his boat without an officer. Chase writes, On the 11th, at six o'clock in the morning, we sewed him up in his clothes, tied a large stone to his feet, and having brought all the boats to, consigned him in a solemn manner to the ocean. With the death of Matthew Joy, I think it's interesting, you know, Knowing in hindsight what we know about the rest of the story, it's really noteworthy what didn't happen to Matthew Mm -hmm. Joy, namely that no one even seems to have considered the need to keep him around as a possible source of food. 
you know, as we were kind of talking about this, you were kind of saying that this is kind of the moment in the story where you can show that it shifts to being truly a tragedy. And it reminds me of the Donner party quite a bit, just like the process you see them go through that. Yeah. It's the same way that clearly that going into it, there's no intention of cannibalism because when the first people are dying, it's still a sad, solemn, bury them affair. And it's interesting to see the events kind of take place and how that changes. Yeah, how the rules of society are still kind of clinging to this sort of mini society that they formed on the boats. And yeah, how that will slowly erode as things get worse. Because I'm sure no one's even bringing it up at this point. Oh, right. Yeah. Why would you? So in the days following Joy's death, heavy weather was encountered, and this resulted in Chase's boat becoming separated from the other two. So unlike the previous one, this will be a permanent separation. So to make their miseries worse, rations had to be cut further. And by mid-January, Philbrick writes, they're already on half provisions, giving them only three ounces of bread per day. Three ounces of hardtack provided them with only 250 calories a day, less than 15% of their daily needs. Chase told his men that they had no choice but to cut these half rations once again to only one and one half ounces of bread a day. So the night of the 14th brought Chase his first real extreme test of leadership. I think this is this is one of the most interesting parts to me of I think the whole story is seeing Chase now is totally independent for all intents and purposes. He is the captain now. Look at him. And so having fallen asleep without locking the sea chest that had all the rations in it, Chase is awakened and he's informed that Richard Peterson, the oldest of the crew at age 60, and this is one of the black crewmen who was recruited from off island, had stolen additional bread rations uh, out of the sea chest. Chase's immediate reaction is that he prepares to shoot Richard Peterson, Mm -hmm. which if we just kind of put this back, you know, can you imagine a Quaker Nantucket or just pulling a gun on someone on land? <laughs> right. And this this is kind of the first thing that shows like how far they've come from society. And I mean, I think it, yeah, it is one of those things that in a survival situation, like no matter who you are, there's suddenly rules that are almost unspoken in a way that it's not just stealing at this point. It's something more than that. He very quickly takes pity on Peterson due to the situation. I mean, again, Peterson is the oldest. He's he's probably in the worst shape. And again, this is just kind of a situation that no one has no one has a, a guidebook for. I think it's also interesting, though, that it shows kind of that true commitment that Quakers probably do have to nonviolence, that he could have easily just done it. And there's probably no one on that boat that would have questioned it. But he was able to stop and think about it and know that actually, you know, this guy, I have pity on him. He's in a bad situation just like I am. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that is interesting that he 100% could have shot him right away. And you know, everyone in the boat, like, great, more food for us now. Yeah, so Chase uh, describes that as follows. He appeared to be very penitent for his crime and earnestly swore that he would never be guilty of it again. I could not find it in my soul to extend towards him the least severity on this account. However much, according to the strict imposition which we felt ourselves, it might demand. 
yeah, so like you just said, even knowing that like this is the rule, this is what would happen in any other situation like this, I can't do it. You know, maybe a little discretion goes a, a long way that it's a reminder to the crew of what the, the penalty is. You didn't have to shoot anyone, and maybe someone that was thinking about it doesn't try it now. So speaking of food, on the night of the 15th, a large shark appeared near the boat, quote, swimming about us in a most ravenous manner. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, attempts to spear the shark were unsuccessful due to both the shark's size and the men's weakness. It's interesting in the in Chase's narrative, the way that he talks about them being truly afraid of this animal. These guys who have killed some of the biggest predators on Earth pretty routinely. And now the situation has changed. And yeah, the way that he writes about like their actual fear of this animal is is really interesting to read. So attempts to capture porpoises the next two days would also fail. And on January 20th, Richard Peterson died uh, after he, quote, manifested today symptoms of a speedy dissolution. And I think this I mean, this this may connect back to the stealing incident. Um, Peterson's age and condition, it might also contribute to Chase's decision not to shoot him, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that this guy probably doesn't have a lot of time left anyway. Right. And like Joy, Peterson was buried at sea. So by this point, the men are suffering from severe starvation to the point that Chase notes how it affected his mind. I dreamt of being placed near a splendid and rich repast where there was everything that the most dainty appetite could desire and of contemplating the moment in which we were to commence to eat with enraptured feelings of delight. And just as I was about to partake of it, I suddenly awoke to the cold realities of my miserable situation. Nothing could have oppressed me so much. It set such a longing frenzy for victuals in my mind that I felt as if I could have wished the dream to continue forever, that I never might have awoke from it. He's kind of clearly in this sort of gray area between being conscious and being unconscious, whether this is a dream or what we might call a hallucination. Uh huh. His mind is focused on one thing and one thing only. And by the 28th, Chase's boat is really just drifting. The men are too weak to really do any actual sailing. Mm -hmm. Chase decides to increase the rations to get the men up to a minimum strength and take advantage of the wind, saying, well, okay, we can eat, you know, an eighth of an ounce of bread every day and then slowly die. Or we could get ourselves a little bit of energy and actually do something for a bit. Yeah, that management is interesting because you think conserve, conserve, conserve. But yeah, you still do have to have that minimum to function because you're right. Otherwise, you're just dying even slower. So with the variable winds through the first week of February, the situation is getting pretty dire. And on February 8th, we see the beginnings of what I guess we could call the other incidents from the tale of the Essex. Uh, So Isaac Cole, uh, this is Chase's boat still appears to suffer a mental breakdown. He starts behaving erratically and becoming, quote, a most miserable spectacle of madness. Uh, around four o'clock the same day, Cole died, quote, in the most horrid and frightful convulsions I ever witnessed. We've seen two previous crew members die already. And this is the first one where there's some difference. Um, again, this is Chase's boat, so they're separate. So the timelines are going to get a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. 
but this is Chase's boat on the 8th of February. Cole isn't immediately prepared for burial. His body is actually kept in the boat overnight. And in the morning, as preparations are being made for him to be buried, the question that's probably in everyone's mind, the quote, painful subject, as it's described, finally takes center stage. Should we use Cole's body for food? Uh, So with no argument against this coming from the crew, they set about preparing the body to be eaten rather than buried. We separated his limb from his body and cut all the flesh from the bones, after which we opened the body, took out the heart, and then closed it again, sewed it up as decently as we could, and committed it to the sea. So there's some morbid parallels you can draw here, actually, with their butchering of the whales. They're kind of just doing the same thing to one of their crewmates. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Like, they they definitely know how to do this. Yeah, it's all very business-like, um, very deliberate uh, in Chase's accounts. You know, they're taking out the important pieces that they can use from the inside and then committing the body to the sea if we're talking about a person or discarding it if we're talking about a whale. If there's any moral hang-ups about consuming one of their shipmates, Chase doesn't detail them in his narrative. Um, he makes it seem like this was very much acknowledged by everyone as the necessary move. It's really presented very pragmatically. Um, to give them any sort of chance to survive. So Cole's heart was divided up and eaten. Strips of flesh were cut to be dried in the sun. Uh, They actually found that drying them in the sun before cooking them wasn't a great idea because the meat would go bad. Interesting. But they found that cooking the flesh first allowed them to keep it for six or seven days longer. So many cooking tips that you just didn't want to know. Some seven-day-old human meat leftovers. That man jerky. In this manner... Did we dispose of our fellow sufferer? The painful recollection of which brings to mind at this moment some of the most disagreeable and revolting ideas that it is capable of conceiving. So while this was the first cannibalism event for Chase's boat, it actually wasn't the first for the rest of the Essex crew. And this is an interesting bit of the timeline here um, with these boats separated. All the way back on January 20th, one of the men in the third whale boat so this is now under the command of Obed Hendricks, had died. And this was Lawson Thomas, one of the Essex's black off-island crew members. To keep the timelines kind of connected, this is actually the same day that Richard Peterson dies on Chase's boat. Okay. So it's noted that Chase was by far the most militant of the officers in observing the distribution of rations and cutting them as necessary. Um, So this is why his boat is able to not resort to cannibalism for... I think it's about two weeks later compared to the other boats. And as we just described with Isaac Cole, useful internal organs were removed and flesh was cut from the body of Lawson Thomas to be cooked. Thomas's body was eventually shared among both boats, uh, Pollard and Hendricks, uh, once Pollard's men ran out of their bread rations. God, that has to be a weird conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, so even even with this new source of meat available, Pollard's boat still does stick to just their bread until they absolutely have to. Yeah, like that would be the worst is like as soon as you do it, then you get found by a ship and then like you're like, well, I guess I didn't have to do that. <laughs> so I can understand waiting. On the 23rd, another black crew member, Charles Shorter, died. Uh, like Cole and Thomas, Shorter's body was consumed by the remaining men. This leads to one of the interesting factors, not just in this story, but other survival cannibalism stories is contributing factors for 
why it was the black crew members who tended to fare the worst among mm-hmm. the men of the Essex. Um, possible factors are inferior diet prior to the sinking, you know, or even prior to joining the Essex. Well, they're serving as common crew. They're not eating well, regardless of anything else uh, in their background. But that's a possibility. And also differences in available body fat. Um, so you have less body fat, you're going to start burning muscle faster, and that's mm-hmm. going to kill you faster. Philbrick does also put forward a potential darker explanation for this. It is not uncommon for subgroups to develop as a collective form of defense against the remorseless march of horror. And it was here that the Nantucketers, their ties of kinship and religion stitching them together, had an overwhelming advantage. Since there would be no black survivors to contradict the testimonies of the whites, the possibility exists that the Nantucketers took a far more active role in ensuring their own survival than has been otherwise suggested. Certainly, the statistics raise suspicion. Of the first four sailors to be eaten, all were black. Short of murdering the black crew members, the Nantucketers could have refused to share meat with them. Yeah, so there's multiple levels you know, on this spectrum of what exactly do we mean by having this advantage. And yeah, it, it could be, you know, this, it could be, you know, they, they made a secret conspiratorial agreement that they were going to kill the black crew members and save themselves. Or it could have been a, a little bit less active than that. It could have just been the matter that they're not being treated totally equally. They're not getting quite as much of the rations maybe as the other crew members are. Yeah, that's kind of where I think I fall on it is that you're the last one to get bread. So if you get a little less bread, that's the way it is that day. You're the last one to get water. Maybe you're getting less water. So I think it probably is something to do, you know, a little bit of, of that. And then a little bit of maybe some uh, environmental factors, like you said, of the diet before going on this and just overall health. But when you look at it, yeah, like it looks like the cards were probably stacked against them. I think looking at it psychologically also too, which is going to play a factor in a survival situation is it does all come back to the in-group, out-group dynamics. As we see here, the white Nantucketers fare better overall. Part of that probably comes from the fact that they feel more like a group. They feel that solidarity and support coming from their fellow crew members, where if you're a black crew member, you might not feel that same level of camaraderie here that the others are feeling. Right. So on the night of January 29th, the four remaining men of Pollard's boat found that Hendrix's boat was nowhere to be seen. And it would not be seen again. Uh, This is another, this is a fully permanent separation. Hendrix's boat is gone. So the remaining people in Pollard's boat are all Nantucketers. So there's Pollard himself, Owen Coffin, Charles Ramsdale, and Barzillai Ray. On February 6th, so this is two days before Chase's boat would first engage in cannibalism, Possibly the darkest episode of the Essex saga occurred. With the little remaining of Samuel Reed's body, uh, Reed had died on the 28th, Charles Ramsdell brings up the horrifying notion of casting lots. Our old friend, the custom of the sea. Uh, This would require the casting of lots to determine who would be killed so that his body could be eaten, and also who would do the killing. Ramsdell was supported in this by Owen Coffin and Barzillai Ray. 
although Pollard resisted this at first. Again, Pollard is opposed to something that the majority wants, Mm -hmm. and he ends up agreeing to it. This is obviously a far more desperate situation. So scraps of paper put into a hat. The lot for who would be killed fell to Owen Coffin. The lot for who would do the killing fell to Charles Ramsdell. I suppose that that is fair since he's the one that brought it up. I can't remember in the Donner party, but the first guy that suggests it, is he selected to be killed or is he the one that's also selected to do the killing? It's very similar. I forget. Because they decide to not do it ultimately when they first bring it up. Yeah, I forget how that went down. Pollard's account describes his actions as follows. We cast lots, and the fatal one fell on my poor cabin boy. I started forward instantly and cried out, My lad, my lad, if you don't like your lot, I'll shoot the first man that touches you. The poor emaciated boy hesitated a moment or two, then quietly laying his head down upon the gunwale of the boat, he said, I like it as well as any other. He was soon dispatched and nothing of him left. I'm fascinated by what Coffin says there. Pollard says, you know, if you don't like your lot. And Coffin says, I like it as well as any other. And I think there's two ways you can read that or Mm -hmm. understand that line. One of them is very nihilistic, kind of seeing that there's no, there's probably no great way out of this situation. Mm -hmm. This might as well be the way that it ends. And one is more based on a sense of duty, the way of, you know, hey, I, you know, I I like it just as much as anyone else would in the, you know, no, no one's going to enjoy this here. But it has to be somebody. So why not? Why not me? Mm -hmm. Switching back to Chase's boat now for the final act. Uh, On the morning of February 18th, Benjamin Lawrence sighted a sail in the distance. Chase confirmed the sighting, estimating it at about seven miles away. They managed to approach the ship close enough to be seen, and the ship, which was the merchantman Indian, shortened sail and called out with the ship's trumpet for the men to identify themselves. Chase was only able to reply simply, Essex, whale ship, Nantucket. So the survivors, uh, they're too weak to climb aboard themselves. They're lifted onto the ship and placed in the captain's quarters, where they're served tapioca pudding. Which is apparently really great for this kind of situation because it is easy to eat and it has a very high caloric content for it. I imagine um, also just the stress that processing food puts on your body at this point. Like it's probably pretty easy to break down for your stomach. But yeah, gives you calories as well. Even this early, like there's there's some knowledge of the fact that you can't just give a starving person like all the food that they that they probably mm-hmm. want because it'll it'll kill them. So they're helping them rest and recuperate. It had been 89 days since they left the sinking hulk of the Essex. And despite how long it had taken them, uh, it had taken them almost another month compared to what they had expected. They'd gotten to almost exactly where they were going. By noon, the Indian passed the island of Masafuera, and they'd be in Valparaiso, Chile in just a few days. I mean, it is crazy that it worked. Yeah, I mean, this is like... At times, it probably is a bit less active navigation, but Mm -hmm. this is kind of on par with what we said with Captain Bly after the bounty mutiny. 
him being able to navigate to where he was going is one of those kind of like legendary feats of navigational skill. Mm-hmm. So now over to Pollard on February 23rd. In this boat, aside from the captain, there was only Charles Ramsdale remaining alive. Barzillai Ray had died on February 11th, about 10 days after his friend Owen Coffin was killed. Ray had also been eaten, and there was nothing left of him now. The two remaining sailors had resorted to cracking open their shipmates' bones for the marrow. Yeah, that's truly, like, just a horror story. Talking about levels of the descent, kind of, from, you know, culture, as it were, to truly existing on an animal level, cracking open bones to suck out the marrow is something that you, you know, associate with a scavenging animal. Right. And so, yeah, they're they're kind of as, as low as you can go on that on that scale. As Pollard and Ramsdale lay, you know, they're nearing the point of death in the bottom of their boat. A ship loomed up and approached the craft. This was another Nantucket whaler, the Dauphin, uh, captain by Zimri Coffin. And quoting from the preface to In the Heart of the Sea. First, they saw bones, human bones, littering the thwarts and floorboards as if the whaleboat were the seagoing lair of a ferocious man-eating beast. Then they saw two men. They were curled up in opposite ends of the boat, their skin covered with sores, their eyes bulging from the hollows of their skulls, their beards caked with salt and blood. They were sucking the marrow from the bones of their dead shipmates. So with this discovery uh, by the Dauphin, all of the remaining men in the boats are now, they've now reached safety. And so getting into, getting into the aftermath here, for as much as we talk about, you know, here, the taboo, the cultural stigma associated with cannibalism, none of the survivors attempted to hide the fact that they'd engaged in this practice to survive. Just like with the you know, very business-like, straightforward tone of Chase's narrative, Captain Pollard also independently shares their manner of survival with the ship captains at dinner on the night of his rescue. I mean, this is something he brings up immediately when they get to that part of the narrative. Yeah, that's what we did. I think to an extent, your your hands are kind of tied because like people are probably going to ask, well, what did you eat? It also probably seems a lot less weird after you've been at sea for months and like it became part of what you did, even if you're half feral when they find you like it probably just until you get more space between that event, like it's just what you did. It, it probably doesn't seem like that big of a deal in the moment. For the sake of time, we have to skip some details immediately post rescue. But the survivors of the Essex were reunited in Valparaiso on March 17th with the arrival of the ship Two Brothers carrying Pollard and Ramsdale. All in all, five men survived in the boats. All Nantucketers, all white. All the survivors except for Pollard, who was judged to be too weak to travel, took the Nantucket whaler Eagle back home on March 23rd. Pollard would follow two months later in The Two Brothers. But let's not forget about the three who stayed behind on what they thought was Ducey Island. So Captain Thomas Rain of the Surrey, he was in Valparaiso at the time that the survivors were brought in, and he agreed to stop by Ducey on his way to Sydney to pick up the three remaining crew. But on arrival at Ducey Island, Rain found no one. And 
nothing to indicate that any humans had been there in a long, long time, much longer uh, than uh, would have been uh, would have made sense for this story. Uh oh. He's saying the shore was so thick with nesting birds, it was impossible to walk without stepping on eggs. Then, in what to me is one of the most impressive parts of the story, the whole story, actually, Rain looks at his charts and he concludes that the men may have mistaken their island for Ducey Island, when instead they were on Henderson Island, 200 miles west. So this is just a theory he has looking at his charts saying, you know, if I was looking at this, maybe I would mistake these two islands for one another. That is pretty impressive on his part to be like, hmm, maybe. And like, to, like it, it is also kind of just on his way anyway. It's at the same latitude. So he continues sailing west. He gets to Henderson on, on April 9th, and he's actually able to rescue Thomas Chapel, Seth Weeks, and William Wright, bringing the total number of Essex survivors to eight. For a detailed depiction of that rescue, Thomas Farrell Heffernan's book uh, Stove by a Whale goes into a lot more detail. It's really fascinating. It talks a lot more about the captain, uh, Thomas Rain. Um, that's that's a really cool part of the story that I didn't know anything about going into it. That book in general has a lot of great sort of side supporting material for the story that isn't really covered in in the heart of the sea. So I think those books work well together uh, for sure. So the four men in the first group on the Eagle returned to Nantucket on June 11th. Chase wrote, My family had received the most distressing account of our shipwreck and had given me up for lost. My unexpected appearance was welcomed with the most grateful obligations and acknowledgments to a beneficent creator who had guided me through darkness, trouble, and death once more to the bosom of my country and friends. Your beneficent creator also made you eat your cousin. So, <laughs> or rather, I guess that was Pollard, but <laughs> regardless. So Pollard arrived two months later, uh, being the one who'd ultimately have to face the people of Nantucket and bear responsibility for what happened to all of their sons. Probably the most unenviable task of Pollard's was having to explain to his aunt, Nancy Coffin, what had happened to her son, his cousin, Owen. And the account of Thomas Nickerson records that he bore the awful message to the mother as her son desired. She became almost frantic with the thought, and I have heard that she never could become reconciled to the captain's presence. So as we wrap up here, both Pollard and Chase would continue their whaling careers. Chase was the far more successful of the two. Pollard was actually given command of the two brothers, the ship that had carried him home from Chile. And I think this is pretty significant. Both Charles Ramsdale and Thomas Nickerson signed on to sail with him on the two brothers. I think having gone through all of that, especially with the reputation that Pollard sometimes has, mm -hmm. I think in the, the current discussion of the Essex, it's pretty telling that they still wanted to sail with him and trusted him. Yeah, and it's it's one thing for, you know, you probably wouldn't expect Chase to necessarily want to sail with him again. Mm -hmm. But it is significant, I think, for these younger crew members. You know, these are these were teenagers at the time they sailed with the Essex, that that's a person that they continue to want to be around because, you know, he got them through this ordeal. Yeah, I guess collective trauma does a lot to bond you. <laughs> Two brothers would actually run aground and sink in February 1823, and this finally did bring an end to Pollard's career. 
at this point now he's lost two whaling boats and you know he's not he's not going to be considered for another captaincy he ultimately became i didn't write this down i think he became the night watchman yeah in, yeah in he which also kind of sucks for him because you know like all the little kids of the town probably told stories about the cannibal who you know is the night watchman don't stay out too late or watchman pollard will eat you Chase did enjoy a successful whaling career until his retirement in 1840. His personal life wasn't so happy. You kind of get the sense maybe he was just happier on a whale ship. And despite his career, Chase really had been permanently affected by those experiences uh, surviving in the boats. He actually lived in a mental institution for about eight years. And he died on March 7th, 1869. Yeah, you kind of have to wonder if he... Probably it was only happy on the whale boats because he, in his head, he was probably always on the whale boat. I'm sure there was some massive untreated PTSD and things going on there. Several of the other survivors also went on to captaincies of their own. Uh, some of those in whaling, some of those in the merchant trade. Yeah, I mean, so like that's that's kind of a quick wrap up to our very, very long story. But there's. There's so much in this one. I think this is this is one that I was always feeling kind of unsatisfied with, like what mm-hmm. we're able to cover, because there really is so much to it. I mean, this is this is why there's multiple books written about it. Yeah, and multiple good books. That's the thing. There's some topics where there's like one good book and a bunch of clingers on, but like there's multiple good books with different information and stuff here. In the Heart of the Sea was excellent. I do highly recommend anyone that's interested read that as a yeah. probably a good starting point, and then you can get more into it from there. Yeah, that's a great book. The Heffernan is a great book, um, kind of great in a different way from In the Heart of the Sea. Warbler Classics uh, has an edition of uh, it's the Chase narrative, and it has the much shorter accounts of George Pollard and Thomas Chapel in them as well. I used that quite a bit when I was looking at the firsthand stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll touch on some of the more big picture aspects of the whaling industry in Nantucket in the bonus episode, which I've alluded to before. It's going to focus on kind of the whaling diaspora in the time between the revolution and the war of 1812. Some really fascinating stuff there. And we'll talk more big picture, wrap up a few loose ends there. Final thoughts on this one. This is such a big episode, one that interests a lot of different people for many different reasons. There's the whaling aspect. There's the shipwreck aspect. There's the survival aspect of it all combined into one story. And I think it's I think for this one, a lot is made of kind of the irony behind, you know, the survivors make this this decision to sail east in order to avoid being, you know, possibly killed and cannibalized only to have to resort to that behavior themselves. Mm-hmm. And a lot is made of that irony of, well, they were so afraid of cannibals that they had to become cannibals. And while that's like technically true, I I think it'd be interesting to know the extent to which survivors would have seen any sort of parallel there at all. Mm-hmm. Earlier, we talked, we talked about the conceptions of cannibalism, anthropophagy in these tribal, you know, quote, uncivilized societies. But we also see these men being really forthcoming about engaging in cannibalism themselves. I really think they would have seen their situation as entirely different. I mean, I think clearly because we talked about like with the way that the rules of society break down, that they're even open to the idea of killing in the first place. 
right, uh, this is a group of people who don't even typically consider that uh, as an option. And in in discussions in literature, there is this big divide between survival cannibalism and other forms of cannibalism, uh, whether that's coming up in a cultural practice, which you see some places. And so, yeah, like I think while that irony definitely exists and it it is kind of a a salient point about the story of the Essex, I think you can make too much of that. I, mm-hmm. I think it's they're very different things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all I've got prepared here. Notes wise. Again, it's a lot of stuff to try to cover in just the three episodes. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to more in the bonus episodes and we can always come back. There's a lot of spinoff things I'd like to do that involve the Essex. Um, you know, even just the time period of, you know, become really fascinated in uh, 1800s whaling. So I think we'll definitely be back to that time period, back to this area. Yeah. Anything else? I don't think so. No, it's like you said, it's a big topic, but I, uh, I think we've kind of got a high overview of it here. I think it's been a great series. Cool. Well, you've made it with us this far. So thank you all for listening. Um, we really do appreciate it. Uh, hearing your feedback. Um, it really does you know, motivate us to, to make the show and, and put a lot of time and effort into it. So thank you for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And we have some, good weirdness in the schedule coming up uh with taylor taylor's going to be getting married is that next week already it is next week yep so, so we'll we'll do a few things we'll try and stick with our recording schedule we'll be putting out something next week to kind of fill that gap and then we'll be we'll be back to it uh and putting out a bunch of stuff in october uh so i guess we'll sign off there and we will talk to you again soon <laughs>